Welcome to the Behavioral Healthcare Executive Podcast. I am BHE Senior Editor Tom Valentino, and today we are joined by Gary Mandel, the founder and CEO of Shatterproof, the national not-for-profit organization that is focused on reversing the course of the addiction crisis in America. Gary, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Um, Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Gary, Shatterproof is involved in so many initiatives to address addiction in the U.S. I think it might be quicker to ask what you're not working on these days. Legislatively speaking, though, what would you say are the biggest public policy issues that you're focused on right now with Shatterproof? Sure. Uh, I would say uh, three that we're focused on right now. Uh, Number one, for those addicted to opioids, The gold standard treatment proven by randomly controlled science, by researchers, by science, is a medication called buprenorphine. Um, That's one of three medications that are, any one of the three are gold standard. It's buprenorphine, it's naltrexone, and it's methadone. Um, Buprenorphine, which is one of the three, uh, absolutely improves outcomes, but can only be prescribed by a doctor who has, or a nurse who have special licenses. And for a doctor that requires eight hours of additional training and then um, um, licensed by the DEA. For a nurse, it's 24 hours and licensed by the DEA. Because of this extra licensing that needs to, that a professional needs to go through, less than 3% of the doctors in this country are licensed to prescribe buprenorphine. That there's a big call for an out right now for that to be ended. Um, it was started years ago when there was good reason, where there was concern about um, you know rampant use spreading through the streets of this, but the risks of that have proven to be extremely low in relation to the positives of more doctors being able to prescribe it. And, and Tom, for your listeners, if I can put it into simple, you know, example here, doctors in this country can prescribe Vicodin, Percocet, Oxycontin without any special license. But then if one of their patients becomes addicted to one of those, which are opioids, to treat that person, they can't do it unless they get this whole extra training. Again, I'm not blaming anybody. There was good reason to create this regulation years ago. But in today's environment, where more than 90,000 people will die this year of an overdose, this needs to be pulled away. Uh, There's a a bill in Congress to do so. There was also an executive order uh, by the Trump administration the last couple of weeks they were in office to reverse this. And it's now being held up by the Biden administration, not specific to this, but they held up a lot of things for a chance to review it all, which makes sense. Um, but it, but it's been time. Um, it's now time to review this and get this reversed. So that's number one. Number two, professional education. Every medical student, every nursing school student graduates medical school or nursing school with a baseline of information of how the body works. And if a, do- if a medical student then wants to go into heart specialty, they get a residency and fellowship in heart. They want to do another part of the body, they go a residency and fellowship in that area. But they get baseline information in medical school. 
less than a quarter of medical schools in this country, or let me say it differently, less than a quarter of medical students in this country graduate with any kind of basic information about how addiction can be prevented and treated. That needs to be rectified if we're going to bring this into the healthcare system where it belongs. Uh, and we are working two angles to do so. One, there is a bill in Congress right now in the House and the Senate, and there's hearings going on um, that would require that. And there's also, uh, we're going to be working with the, the Biden administration to have a convening of the accrediting bodies who only accredit medical schools and nursing schools based on certain criteria. And one of the criteria should be basic education and the, the prevention and treatment of addiction. So that's number two. Number three, there's going to be billions of dollars coming out each year, very soon, in settlement money for the opiate epidemic. And we need to ensure that that money is used by states. Not we need to, states need to ensure, we need to educate them on what are good uses of that funding that will actually save lives that have been proven by research to do so. So that's the three policy initiatives. It's a lot going on. In your position with Shatterproof, um, what kind of activities can you engage in to help facilitate and make these things happen? Is it working directly with legislators? Is it raising public awareness and, and trying to get a groundswell of support from the general public? Uh, how, how does it work for you? What, what does this all look like in action? You know, Tom, great, great uh, question. It really depends on the particular issue, and it also depends on each state is different and each situation is different. Um, the first lever that you try is working, is, is, it's not lobbying or advocating, it's educating, right? I mean, there is no way that anybody can be elected to um, an elected position and be experts in everything. So it's about educating their staff who work on certain issues, whether it's healthcare, climate, infrastructure, et cetera, the healthcare staff on issues that are important. So they understand, or, or not issues are important, issues that if policy is changed, lives can be saved. Um, and so it's educating. If you're educating and it turns into a political issue where there are certain politics involved, why that legislator we believe will not listen to logic in our, from our perspective, and I'll say from our perspective, then there's advocacy issues you can bring to bear. Um, in public hearings, you can bring families together to testify who've been touched and affected tragically by a bad policy. So it starts to create a public will for that. You, we can bring together thousands of advocates in a state to reach out to their legislators and tell them this issue is important to them. If it's a national issue, we can bring together tens of thousands of advocates to reach out to their legislators and tell them how important this is. We can use the PR, uh, we can go to PR, we can work with PR and get articles written and op-eds written and letters to the editors written about our issues, et cetera. You know, when we worked on the CDC prescribing guideline, helping the CDC give them support, for the prescribing guidelines several years ago, we worked with several senators who had a press conference the day before the public hearing. It was great. And they brought attention to it. So there's all kinds of levers you can pull depending on the situation. Well, I know one other issue that is certainly very important uh, for you and, and for Shatterproof uh, is the issue of stigma and uh, just how that remains an ongoing issue with regards to addiction. 
I've been covering this field for about five years now, and I can tell you that even back when I first got into it, you know, it seemed to me like back then stigma was already a well-worn topic, and yet here we are in 2021, and I think it's still a problem. Uh, I know it's an issue that you spoke about uh, earlier this month at the Prescription Drug Abuse and Heroin Summit, and uh, your organization recently published an addiction language guide. And I think what's kind of most surprising for me is that it's not really just an issue among the general public and in how folks uh, might uh, view individuals uh, who are battling addiction. Uh, It's something that can even be an issue within the addiction treatment field itself. Absolutely, Tom. And I'm so glad you asked that. Um, In a, I think a, a way to bring this to life a little bit is in a national survey that was done a few years ago, about half of Americans responded saying, those addicted to prescription opioids, it's not their fault, it's a chronic illness. About half said, it is the person's fault, they're not trying hard enough, poor willpower. But eight out of 10, 80% of the people that responded to that survey, that included many that said it was a chronic illness, not their fault, because the 80 is far higher than the 50%, so many said that even though it's their, not their fault, I'm not comfortable associating with someone addicted to prescription opioids as my friend, my coworker, my neighbor, marrying into my family. And I'm, the survey was written about prescription opioids, but I'm sure it's generally the same for alcohol or other drugs. And, and my point being is There's 20 million Americans addicted to a substance today. I guarantee you that probably less than one have ever read that survey. But I would bet you that almost every one of those 20 million feel it. Because if all the touch points in the society are, wow, you're addicted to prescription opioids? (laughs) You can't come up with my apartment tonight. I can't be your friend. Mm. Don't even think about getting an apartment in my building. No way. I'm not even telling you about it. You can't work at my company. That's the touch points they're getting. So what's the result of that? The result of that is in an annual survey that the federal government does, one of the survey questions is why didn't you go to treatment? 20% of those who didn't go to treatment responded by saying, because I don't want my friends, my family, or my coworkers to find out. Well, why? And it's such a low percentage of people addicted who go to treatment. It's about 15% compared to 80% for diabetes Hmm. or 75% for heart disease. Stigma is not the entire gap, but it's 20 points of the gap. I mean, that would double the number of of people treated if we could change that. And so what are some other ramifications of stigma? 25%, one and quarter primary care doctors in the country responded to a survey of why don't, I am not comfortable treating those addicted to opioids because it'll hurt the perception of my practice. One in four said that. One in two emergency room and primary care doctors say that addiction is not treatable. When Tom, and for all your listeners, it is treatable at the same success rates as any other chronic illness, like heart disease, diabetes, or asthma, same success rates. 
but people don't realize it. So, and the real killer, Tom, the real killer, let's say someone is addicted, 20 years old, got addicted playing soccer and hurt their knee and a doctor gave them Vicodin without telling them it was dangerous. They became addicted. And they don't want to tell anybody because they know the ramifications of telling anybody, but their parents know and the parents convince them. And that 20 year old goes to, to treatment. And let's say they go to the best treatment in the country, treatment program in the country, doing all the right things. Then they enter society where every touch point, four out of five touch points is, you can't be my friend. You can't live in my building. And the killer is, Johnny, that 20-year-old, starts to believe it, internalizes it. And it's not just the don't want to tell anybody because they're wrong, they don't, but they're not going to be my friend. It's because Johnny starts to believe it. I'm not worthy of getting a good job. I'm not worthy of being someone's friend. And they lose hope. And they lose self-esteem. So I'm here to inform your listeners that when you look at the drivers of the opiate epidemic, and we can extend it to alcohol epidemic and anything, any drug or alcohol, there's nine drivers. Seven of the nine are either partially or fully driven by stigma. And you look at our nation's response, a lot of great things. Improving the quality of care, trying to interrupt the supply of bad drugs coming into the country, on and on and on. There's no national response to stigma, and it's the largest driver of the epidemic. So in response, we spent over a year studying 11 social movements, what were all related to health that were successful in changing the public's perception. And we developed a plan to do so for the stigma of addiction. And when I say the stigma of addiction, three of them, how the public feels, how people who are addicted feel about themselves and the medications that treat it. And we're now starting to implement that program. And any listener that wants to learn more about it, please reach out to the contact line at Shatterproof and ask to speak to me or anyone related to the Stigma Initiative. And we'll get back to them right away. But there's a section on our website all about it. And you can put your email address in there and ask for more information. Yeah, and the language guide that you published, I thought was really interesting. And I spoke with a member of your staff on it Um I believe it was in late February, and we published an article on that on uh, the BHE sister website, Addiction Professional. Uh, it, it's interesting to me that I think sometimes there can be uh, treatment providers who are well-intentioned and might get into a situation where they're parroting back the language that are used that is used by patients, and in some cases that can even be problematic in and of itself, and it's something uh, that, that can be harmful. And I, I think it's something that folks in the field need to be mindful of. Tom, absolutely. There was a study done several years ago, 300 healthcare professionals in one room, 300 healthcare, healthcare professionals across the hall. And this is healthcare professionals, not the general public. They were each told a story, the exact same story. The first group was told a story about an addict. The second group was told a story about someone who was addicted to drugs. They were then surveyed when they got out. The ones that were told a story about an addict were more likely to say, let's get this person into the criminal justice system. Hmm. The ones that were told a story about someone addicted to drugs were more likely to say, let's get this person to the healthcare, uh, uh, health, the healthcare system. 
it's a fact. It's not my opinion. It's not your opinion. Language matters in simple things. I can't tell you. So providers all the time are using the wrong language unknowingly. You know, great providers who care about their patients just unknowingly are using the wrong language. And by the way, that, that's that, when I mentioned that we study this for a year, there's three simple remedies. Educating in a certain way, not that this is a disease. No, it's a treatable disease. Two, language that you just brought up. Three is policy change. That's it. Three simple things that any organization in this country, any, any organization can implement. We have the content for language. Any organization that reaches out, we'll give it to you for free. Language, we'll give you the ways to do it. Policy, we'll give you a recommendation on what policies create stigma and which ones don't. It's that simple. And just to kind of bring this full circle, uh, I, I think there's a line of thinking out there that removing the X waiver, uh, something that you know you had talked about at the at the top of our discussion. Um, I, I think that there's the line of thinking out there that that could kind of help to to change attitudes about um, you know treatment. And Absolutely. And just for your listeners, the X waiver is what we spoke about at the beginning, which is that requirement that every doctor who wants to prescribe buprenorphine has to, has to take the extra eight hours and get registered with the DEA. That's the X waiver. And so, yes, that will only not increase the number of doctors who prescribe buprenorphine from 3% to 100%. It will also, again, we're treating this like any other illness. No one needs extra training and DEA registration to give someone insulin for diabetes. This is like as basic as you get. And I know the Biden administration is reviewing it right now, and we're working hard to get that eliminated. Absolutely. Well, Gary, this has been really good. Um, it was great chatting with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And, and Tom, thank you. And for all those listening, thank you. Absolutely. A reminder, you can subscribe to the BHE podcast on Apple Podcasts, the TuneIn app, and other podcast listening platforms. Past episodes are also available on our website, behavioral.net. Our thanks again to Gary Mendel, founder and CEO of Shatterproof, for joining us today. I'm Tom Valentino, and this has been the Behavioral Healthcare Executive Podcast. Mm-hmm.